Good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Today we have a special Christmas episode of Inside the Writer's Studio, recorded live in front of an audience here in Winston-Salem. I'll be talking about the genesis of my Christmas book, The Further Adventures of Ebenezer Scrooge, and doing a somewhat dramatic reading of the first chapter. I hope you enjoy listening and that you have a happy holiday season. I, uh, Catherine Memory said to me, this is my second meeting. I said, well, this is my third, so I'm, uh, So talking briefly about my podcast, Inside the Writer's Studio, what you're about to hear is the Christmas edition of Inside the Writer's Studio. That's why I have this little funny thing on my, on my shirt. We're going to record this. So wherever you're sitting now, that's where you'll be sitting on the podcast. Um, but I wanted to talk just a little bit about the genesis of my book, uh, The Farther Adventures of Ebenezer Scrooge, because... It, as you said in your introduction, uh, have a lot of lifelong connections with Summit School, and this book is one of them. So if you'll cast your minds back to November of 2003, uh, I had at that point done a gig a year or two earlier as a long-term sub uh, for a ninth grade English teacher who went off to have a baby. And then the seventh grade English teacher is like, well, if she's going to have a baby, I'm going to have a baby. Uh, so they asked me if I would do long-term sub, a three-month sub for uh, a seventh grade English teacher starting after the Christmas holidays because the baby was going to be born after the Christmas holidays. And I said, fine, that'll be great. Um, the teacher and I arranged to meet with one another about the 15th of December. Before school got out, we'd go over all of the lesson plans and the curriculum and all would be well. And then on the 2nd of December, uh, at about 8.15 in the morning, my phone rang. And it was Summit School saying, well, um, this teacher is actually in the hospital. With uh, every, Everything turned out fine, but there were some, there were some uh, unexpected issues. And uh, instead of coming in on the 4th of January, how about, could you come in like in about 15 minutes? Uh, <laughs> And so I found myself uh, not having perused the curriculum, not having gone over the lesson plans uh, with a room full of eager seventh graders, and uh, it became a, a bit of an adventure. It was Christmas time, and we were studying um, the Arthurian legends, and I had one student in my study hall. All the rest of my students were in PE, so they were, they were off during study hall, and I had this one student in study hall, uh, and he was a very bright kid. And to get him more interested in the King Arthur legends, each day at the beginning of study hall, I would take about five minutes and I would read to him um, an appropriately edited passage from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> and this kind of led us to a discussion of, of parody and what, what it is to, have, to write a parody of something original. And it was Christmas time, and I was like, I, I was trying to keep my sanity. And I thought, I'm going to try writing a parody of the opening passage of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. It's a very famous, um, you know, Marley was dead to begin with. There could be no doubt whatever about that, as dead as a doornail. Um, and I thought, I'll, I'll just write. And I started writing this during study hall, this line by line, you know, parody of it. And I thought, so I wanted it to sound just like Dickens, but but what was going to be the difference? Well, there's, there's sort of two... Um, overriding feelings to me about that opening passage. One is that it's Christmas time. It's, it's winter, it's cold, it's the shortest day of the year. So I thought, great, 
Mine will be summer, it's hot, it's the longest day of the year. And the other is that the main character, Ebenezer Scrooge, is so, so grumpy and grouchy that it really annoys everybody else. And I thought, great, I will make him so cheerful and happy that it really annoys everybody else. And that was kind of how the, how the book started. And over the, over the weeks that led up to Christmas, I worked on this book during study hall. Um, our daughter Jordan was at Salem Academy at the time, and uh, their choir was singing in London after Christmas. So we went over to, to, it was the only time we ever spent Christmas in England. And Christmas Eve, uh, we went to Canterbury Cathedral, and I can remember sitting in the, in the pews at Canterbury. You had to get there early, you know. And I can remember sitting in the pews working on this book, writing about Ebenezer Scrooge. I thought, what better place? What better time? Um, and when I finished it, I printed it out, and I gave a copy of it to this kid who was in my study hall because he'd been so interested in it as, as we'd been progressing along with it. Uh, and I thought that this was going to be the book that, that Lee would introduce me as saying, his big break came in 2004, because this was the first time I ever got an agent, a literary agent, interested in one of my books. And I was so excited. I was like, signed on with this literary agent. We, we met him, and we were in New York. And after we met him and had drinks with him, my wife said, he's, he's not really a very nice guy. He's kind of a jerk. I was like, yeah, I know he really is, but he, he's a literary agent in New York. He wants to publish my book. You know? So he sent the book out to a about four or five publishers who, who turned it down, and that was that. Never really heard from him again. Put the book in the bottom drawer, metaphorically, and didn't think anything more about it until almost 11 years later, I was standing in the office of Catherine Court at Penguin Books, um, my then editor, and talking about what we might do next after uh, Bookman's Tale had come out and First Impressions was about to come out. And I you know, pitched a couple of ideas for books, and somewhere in the conversation, um, I mentioned that I had written this Christmas story. And she said, oh, well, that sounds fun. We did a Christmas book with Craig Johnson. You know, maybe we could do one. Why don't you send it? And so I got home, and I, we were in the middle of editing First Impressions, so I was very busy. And without, I mean, when I looked back on this, I thought, what a stupid thing to do. Without even looking at the computer file, even looking at it to see if it could still be open, because it was a 10-year-old file, I just sent it off to my agent. And then I thought, I probably should have read over that book. You know, I mean, <laughs> um, well, they Penguin bought, bought the book. Um, we, of all the books that I've written uh, for, for publication, I think probably that book was edited the least. Um, it was published almost as I had originally written it um, with some lovely illustrations by Doug Smith. And um, when the book came out, I got an email from this former seventh grader, now graduated from the University of Virginia, and he said... Uh, because I thanked him in the, in the acknowledgments. And he said, um, you know, congratulations. I'm so glad the book finally came out. And he said, I, I want you to know that every year since my seventh grade year, at the end of June, which is when the book is set, I sit down and read that book. So he'd actually read it more times than I had, which I thought was, was pretty cool. So what I'd like to do for you this morning <clears throat> is to read to you a slightly edited version. Um, if, I can, if I can get my glasses on here and see this tiny print that they did in the paperback edition. Uh, a slightly edited version of the first stave. Uh, Dickens divides his, his book into five staves. I don't know why he calls them staves instead of chapters, but if it's good enough for Charles Dickens, it's good enough for me. Um, and if, you, if you're familiar with the, with the Dickens original, I'm sure you will um, notice a, a degree of, you know, you, could, you can call it paying tribute. Uh, plagiarism is another word that we use. Um, 
but certainly it is, it is close to, to Dickens' original. I, my only regret with this book, vis-a-vis -vis Summit School, um, is that I didn't get to show it to Bill Carr, because I think it would have been really fun to talk to Bill, who, who introduced me to Charles Dickens, um, ab about this book, and, and for the two of us to sort of pick it apart. Because there are places in the book where you will go, now that sentence really does sound like Charles Dickens. And it's because I stole that sentence out of <laughs> David Copperfield or Bleak House or, or someplace else. <clears throat> but it begins like this. Stave one, Marley's ghost. Scrooge was alive to begin with. There could be no doubt whatever about that. Alive and kicking. Not that I know why that particular verb should exemplify life. For Scrooge's part, it might better be said that he was alive and singing, or alive and laughing, or alive and generally making a nuisance of himself. Yes, though Scrooge had approached, then reached, and finally surpassed the age at which most of us, in particular his former partner, Jacob Marley, like Hamlet and his unhappy clan shuffle off this mortal coil, he nonetheless lived on with no noticeable diminution of energy or ecstasy or enthusiasm. Cratchit knew this well. How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and Cratchit had been partners for nigh on 20 years, and in all that time, Cratchit, though he had watched as the lines of age had waged their admittedly only modestly successful assault on Scrooge's visage, had noted no decrease in his partner's liveliness. Which brings me back to the point I started from. There is no doubt that Scrooge was as alive as ever. Some might say more alive. Oh, but he was an open-handed benefactor, Scrooge. A generous, charitable, jolly, gleeful, munificent old fool, yielding as a feather pillow that welcomed the weariest soul to its downy breast. The light within him melted his hardened features, reddened his nose, puffed out his cheeks, loosened his gait, as well as his purse strings, made his eyes sparkle and his lips glow, and bubbled forth in his dulcet voice. A tuneful rhyme was ever in his throat, and his frosty eyebrows fooled no one. He carried his own warmth always about him. He could thaw ice blocks with his presence as easily at Christmastide as in the dog days of summer. Once upon a time, of all the days in the year, that longest day when shadows in the narrowest alley do not lengthen until well past the hour when men like Scrooge have taken their evening meal, Old Scrooge whistled his way down a narrow street of Westminster. It was hot, sultry, sweaty weather, and the shimmer on the Thames was enough to cloud the mind of the most clear-thinking man. The city clocks had just gone three, but the sun seemed disinclined to rest in its glaring pursuit of those souls who slogged along the paving stones. The heat came pouring in at every chink and keyhole and spared no one from the lowliest clerk to the wealthiest miser who ever captained a counting house. In a government office in Whitehall, laboring to keep a certain column of numbers from encroaching upon another similar column, and thus bringing down the empire, sat Scrooge's nephew, Freddy. And as he had left his door standing open, in the vain hope that some stirring of the air might bring a hint of relief from the stifling heat, he had not the turn of the handle to warn him of his uncle's approach. A Merry Christmas, nephew. God save you, cried Scrooge in a cheerful voice. Christmas, replied the startled nephew. I've no time now for Christmas, Uncle. Scrooge inexplicably wore a muffler wound round his ruddy neck, and this he now unwound in a leisurely fashion, as if it were one and the same to him whether it adorned him or not. His eyes sparkled as he endured the impatient stare of his nephew. No time for Christmas, said Scrooge. You don't mean that, I am sure. I do, said Freddy. Merry Christmas on the longest day of summer. What right have you to be merry when all around you are working? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then, what right have you to be dismal? 
What reason have you to be morose? Not this again, uncle. I'm poor because I choose to be, because I take more pleasure in giving away my gold than in hoarding it to pay for my meager needs. And so I say again, Merry Christmas. Fearing that his superior, the assistant to the undersecretary of a governmental department, the purpose of which Scrooge had never entirely understood, might overhear their conversation, Freddy pulled shut the connecting door and lowered his voice. It is all the same to me, uncle, if you wish me a Merry Christmas on every day of the year. I've no objection if you keep Christmas in your way. But there are others who say that Bedlam is the place for a fool who walks about with Merry Christmas on his lips on the hottest days of summer. There are those who mutter behind your back that such an idiot as Scrooge should be stuffed like a goose, wrapped in mistletoe, and floated across the Thames. <laughs> Nephew, why should Christmas be the only good time of year? The only kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. Why should Christmas be the only time when men and women open their shut-up hearts freely and think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave? Your sentiments are admirable, Uncle, I have no doubt. But I have bills to pay and books to balance. I'm a year older than last summer and not a farthing richer. Though of all the quantities that surround me, my wife's allowance, my children's appetites, my haberdasher's bill, the only one which seems never to increase is my bank balance. I should love to have your leisure for cheerfulness, Uncle, but most of us can afford no more than a few days of Merry Christmas. I shall come to dine with you tomorrow, said Scrooge, paying no more mind to his nephew's speech than a duck to a raindrop. We've little to spare, Uncle. And little is exactly what I require. Good works, kindness, my cheerful Christmas greeting that you so abhor, these are enough to fill me. Scrooge retrieved his muffler from his nephew's desk and twirled it in the air about his head. Then with a twinkle in his eye, he pulled open the door to the assistant to the undersecretary's office and bellowed, Merry Christmas to that bureaucratic soul. An hour later, rounding the corner of Threadneedle Street, Scrooge caught sight of two gentlemen approaching. They were dressed in black from the glossy leather on the tips of their boots to the shiny silk at the tops of their hats. One swung a silver-handled walking stick in his right hand, the other an identical stick in his left. In bearing, they reminded Scrooge of nothing less than the figurehead on the prow of some ancient sailing ship. Chests thrust proudly forward, they glided down the street toward him. In another moment, they were upon him, and Scrooge burst forth with a hearty, Merry Christmas! Have I the honor of addressing Mr. Pleasant or Mr. Portly? asked Scrooge. For as you see, as both men were pleasant and portly, and as Scrooge could not for his life recall their surnames, he generally addressed the pair, and they were always seen as a pair, as the Messrs. Pleasant and Portly. Uh, Mr. Scrooge, replied Mr. Portly, if it was not Mr. Pleasant, it is fortuitous that we should meet. A fortuitous indeed, added Mr. Pleasant, if it was not Mr. Portly. We should very much like to confer with you, Mr. Scrooge. I am afraid your munificence is once again at odds with your account at the bank. Uh, yes, your account, said Mr. Portly, reaching into a folio that he carried and presenting three checks that bore the flourish with which Mr. Scrooge endorsed his generosity. Uh, you see, Mr. Scrooge, said Mr. Pleasant, pulling a sheet of figures from the depths of a pocket, your current balance is exactly... He ran his finger down the column of numbers, but before it reached the bottom, Mr. Portly interrupted, Tuppence, which is not quite enough to cover these checks. Uh, 50 pounds for the Society for the Relief of Distress, 40 pounds for the, uh, for the Metropolitan Sanitary Association, 
£100 for the home for deserted, destitute children. Well, your largesse, continued Mr. Portley, though well-intentioned, is not well supported by your means, Mr. Scrooge. Liberality, my good gentleman, liberality, responded Scrooge with his usual tone of good cheer. It was a word that brought a frown to the face of Mr. Portley and caused Mr. Pleasant to shake his head. Liberality is not the business of a bank, said Mr. Pleasant, who was beginning to look distinctly undeserving of his sobriquet. Mankind should be your business, said Scrooge with a smile. The common welfare should be your business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence should all be your business. Uh, surely, said Mr. Portley, there are those who rightly make such things their business. There are charities and philanthropists all over London. The bank is a different sort of institution. You of all people should know that, Mr. Scrooge, said Mr. Pleasant. Indeed, added Mr. Portley, there was a time when few in London understood the business of finance better than yourself. Scrooge paid little attention to this allusion to his pecunious past, but instead returned to the theme he had attempted to introduce at the beginning of the conversation. You do not seem to have a Merry Christmas in your hearts, gentlemen. If you would but remember that festive season of the year, you would certainly admit that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute. We do make ourselves merry at Christmas, and at that time we do make such provisions, to be sure, said Mr. Portley. But we can hardly afford, concluded Mr. Pleasant, to make idle people merry all the year round. Can't you? asked Scrooge with a knowing wink, to which the bankers responded only with a mutual shrug. Seeing clearly that it would be useless to pursue his point, Scrooge made a slight bow to the two gentlemen and betook himself down the street in the general direction of his place of business. When Mr. Portley waved the three offending checks in the air and cried at the retreating figure, oh, But Mr. Scrooge, your account! Scrooge could only be heard wishing, Merry Christmas, not so much to the two bankers as to the general populace. The offices of Scrooge and Cratchit were in an altogether less savory area of London than the bank of Messrs. Pleasant and Portley, a neighborhood where the streets and doorways were narrow, where the finery of the local inhabitants was more likely to consist of rags than of silk, and where the stench of humanity, ripened by the harsh summer sun, was such that decency prohibits describing it. Here, in the larger of two rooms, the smaller being really no more than a cupboard, Bob Cratchit toiled away. Sometimes people new to London called Cratchit Scrooge, a misappellation that invariably caused amusement among the neighbors, for the firm was located on a street so narrow that its tenants enjoyed few secrets. Anyone who had lived in the neighborhood for more than a fortnight, even if he had not met Scrooge, knew of him, and no one who knew of him could possibly mistake the one partner, grimly adding and subtracting figures with barely a mutter and with a brow as tightly knit as the weave of finest cloth on Savile Row, for the other. Just as the hour for shutting up the counting house arrived, so did Scrooge, strolling through the open door with his usual goodwill. You should take the day off tomorrow, he said as Cratchit dismounted from his, school, his stool. Spend some time with your little grandson. I'm sure young Timothy would find it quite convenient. I don't find it convenient, replied Cratchit in the tone of a parent attempting for the hundredth time to disabuse a stubborn child of a ridiculous notion. And I don't find it fair. If I did such a thing and failed to reduce my salary by half a crown, I'd think the firm ill-used. And yet, said Scrooge, you don't think the firm ill-used when I draw a day's wages for an hour's copying letters and seven more wandering about the city wishing strangers a Merry Christmas. 
Cratchit observed that whilst this was a bit unfair, it happened only about once a week. <laughs> a poor excuse for picking your pocket, said Scrooge. If it eases your conscience, you may come in all the earlier the next day. Cratchit remarked that he would be of little help to his grandson if he were not careful to see the firm remain profitable, and that he fully intended to arrive at an early hour the next morning. He flinched only moderately when, as he left, Scrooge bellowed after him, Merry Christmas! Cratchit, after all, was used to it. The office was closed in a moment, and Scrooge walked with a lightness in his step to a nearby tavern. There he settled in to read the papers and to take his evening meal. The tavern keeper had learned long ago that whatever Scrooge took for dinner, tonight it was mutton, he would take Christmas pudding with it, and so that concoction had been prepared in anticipation of Scrooge's arrival. The tavern keeper knew, too, that although Scrooge could rarely afford to pay his bill, tonight was no exception, he was nonetheless good for business. Most of London knew that Scrooge dined at this particular tavern, and much of London stopped by now and again for a mug of ale and a chance to gawk at the old fool daintily consuming his Christmas pudding in the long days of summer. By the time Scrooge returned to his house, the windows were all dark and even the yard was deep in shadow, for the sun had finally been coaxed out of the sky into its briefest retirement of the year. Now it is a fact that there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door, except that, as aforementioned, it was very large. Nonetheless, it was Scrooge's habit, having his key in the lock, to look deep into the shadows that rippled across the surface of the brass. A passing observer might have attributed this behavior to the acknowledged fact that Scrooge had as much of what is called fancy about him as any man in London, including the wittiest actor in the West End and the happiest lunatic in Bedlam. But to Scrooge, the behavior of the knocker had become an omen, a harbinger of what might await him in his rooms above. On this night, as on many previous nights in the past 20 years, Scrooge saw in the knocker, without its undergoing any intermediate process of change, not a knocker, but Marley's face. Yes, Jacob Marley, once partner in Scrooge's counting house, but now dead one score and seven years, was in the habit of making periodic appearances in Scrooge's knocker. Tonight his countenance glowed lurid in the evening haze, as if the sun had not undertaken its brief nocturnal sojourn, but still reflected off the polished brass. To anyone else, it would have seemed horrible. But in Scrooge, who knew what the ghostly spectacles and curiously stirred hair portended, Marley's appearance engendered not fear, but delight. Scrooge rubbed the knocker, which was once again merely a knocker, with one hand as he turned the key with the other. Chuckling, he entered the dim hall and mounted the stairs, trimming his candle as he went. As soon as he passed through his door, he eagerly searched his rooms for any evidence that the event foreshadowed in the knocker had already taken place but found everything in its usual order and himself quite alone. The door to his rooms he left unlocked, as if this would provide a more convenient ingress for his expected visitor. Quite satisfied with this minimal and wholly unnecessary preparation, he took off his cravat and put on his dressing gown and slippers, eschewing his nightcap in silent sympathy with the rest of London, who, unlike him, suffered from the heat. He sat down before the grate, empty as much because of economy as because of the weather, to read a novel by the flickering light of his taper. At the end of a chapter in which the youthful hero had walked from London to Dover with little to assuage his hunger or to protect him from the elements, Scrooge laid his book upon the table so that he might wipe a tear from his eye. So moved was he by the plight of the fictional boy. Come along, friend, cried Scrooge. Show yourself. I've no wish to sit up all night, even on so short a night as this. Straight away, a clanking began as heavy chains were dragged up the stairs. 
Scrooge settled back into his chair and waited for the arrival of the ghost. For it was none other than Marley's ghost who dragged chains ever closer to Scrooge's apartment. Scrooge had considered Marley no more than a business partner in life. He had come to think of him as his dear friend in death, and had even taken to calling him by his given name. It was this name he uttered when a momentary flame leapt up in the grate, signaling the ghost's arrival at his door. Don't keep a poor old man waiting, Jacob, he cried with delighted anticipation. Come in and take a seat. Scrooge could never say exactly how Marley did come in. He did not float through the door, nor seep under it, nor ooze through the keyhole. One moment he was rattling his chains on the landing, and the next he was sitting in the chair opposite Scrooge, his boots propped up on the fender. His chain of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses wrought in steel was clasped about his middle. On his otherwise barren chimney piece, Scrooge kept a decanter of brandy and a pair of snifters, a long-ago Christmas gift from his nephew, for just such occasions. Only when his late partner was fully settled in the chair opposite did Scrooge rise and pour one glass nearly full, then dribble a few drops into the other. The full glass he passed to Marley, the other he kept for himself, not drinking but periodically breathing the rich vapors that circulated in its depths. Marley had politely taken his usual chair, a ragged and decrepit affair that would be no worse for the fresh brandy stains Scrooge would find there next morning, for it might truly be said of Marley that he could not hold his liquor. <laughs> what troubles you, good friend? asked Scrooge. I begin to despair of ever breaking these chains. At this, Marley rose and rattled the chains so that the sound echoed throughout the house, down the stairwell, across the yard below, and down the street, where gaslights flickered and neighbors abed shuddered in their sleep. Scrooge waited until the echoes had died in the heavy evening air, and the specter had fallen back into his brandy-soaked chair. You were not so fettered as when you first came to these rooms. Surely all your works in the past score of years have shortened these chains you bear. Surely you must be close on to earning your rest. These chains, cried Marley, holding his arms aloft so that the chains dragged across the floor with a dull growl. Since the night, I enlisted the help of three spirits to turn you from a man of impervious selfishness to one who embraces all his fellow men with Christian love. I have been relieved of but five links. Five links, said Scrooge, jumping to his feet and striding to the window where the thick summer air slid into the room. Five links, but you have labored these twenty years to help me be a better man, to keep me on the track you so wisely set me upon that Christmas Eve that seems another life ago. How can all those years of devotion have lessened your burden by only five links? Five links, said Marley dully, not moving from his chair. It is the paradox of my curse that in order to shorten my chains, I must do good for those who still live. Yet I have forever lost the power to interfere in human affairs. Marley tilted his head back and opened his ghostly mouth, and more to stanch the wail that would curdle his blood than because he knew of any way to free Marley from his torment, Scrooge said, What if there were a way? Marley froze, his mouth so wide that his face appeared nearly overwhelmed by its cavernous blackness. A way? Let us consider it as a business proposition. You arranged for one man, that is myself, to see the error of his ways and to waken his latent power for good on a single day, Christmas Day. For that, your load was lightened by five links. True, said Marley. One man, one day five links, said Scrooge, who now that he had begun to think in terms of numbers was in familiar territory. 
He could see the solution to Marley's torment like a row of figures in a ledger laid out before him, a simple matter of arithmetic. What if I told you that I knew a way to help hundreds, maybe thousands of people, and not just on one day, but on every day of the year? If one times one equals five links, 365 times a thousand would free you of your chains a hundredfold. But you know it is not within my power to help the living, said Marley with a sigh, and he sank back into his chair and dropped his head onto his ghostly chest so that the two seemed almost to merge. Not possible for you, perhaps, said Scrooge, now trembling with the excitement of the vision unfolding before him. But what if it were possible for me? What if I could help a thousand people or a hundred thousand, but couldn't do it without you? Wouldn't that count for something? Without realizing how it happened, for he never saw Marley budge from his chair, Scrooge found himself enveloped in a cold so chilling he could not move. It was a feeling that would have struck terror in the hearts of most men, but Scrooge knew it to be Marley's embrace. Cold though it was, he could feel the joy in his friend's spirit and the hope in his dormant, ghostly heart. And for the first time in all the years he had known Marley, he felt something else. A single icy tear dropped from Marley's eye onto Scrooge's cheek. A moment later, Marley stepped back and looked at his friends. What do you need from me? he asked. First, said Scrooge without the slightest hesitation, I shall require three spirits. And that's the end of the first story. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. We'll be taking a short hiatus over the holidays, but inside the writer's studio, we'll be back in the new year with New York Times bestseller Roshani Chokshi and first-time novelist Will Medeiros. And we have some great episodes planned for the spring. So use the holidays to catch up on all our past episodes, and we'll see you in the new year. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.